Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Pacific Gas and Electric is California's largest utility, as well as one of the nations responsible for powering millions of homes. But for years, PG&E also endangered millions due to chronic mismanagement and neglect. In 2020, it pleaded guilty to the deaths of 84 people in a fire that was sparked by its equipment. On behalf of PG&E, I apologize, and I apologize personally for the pain that was caused here. How did this once innovative company fall? That's what Catherine Blunt documents in her new book, California Burning, The Fall of PG&E and What It Means for America's Power Grid. She joins us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It was a single rusted hook about the width of a fist, and in 2018, that hook snapped, dropping the high-voltage wire it held and creating the spark that would ignite the campfire. The blaze would kill 85 people, destroy some 19,000 homes and buildings in and around the town of Paradise, and lead Pacific Gas and Electric Company to plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter. Wall Street Journal reporter Catherine Blunt has taken a deep dive into PG&E and the failures that led to that fire in a new book called California Burning. Catherine Blunt, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. So that that hook really came to symbolize a lot for you as you research the issues at PG&E. So first, tell us the specifics about that hook, how it broke down and so on. Yes, absolutely. So if you think about a transmission line, a transmission tower, uh, transmission lines transmit high-voltage electricity, and the wires that uh, transmit that electricity have to be kept away from the towers themselves, or else uh, you risk an arc of electricity surging from the wire to the tower. And in this case, um, there was a hook, like as you said, about the width of a fist that was... Um, that held uh, a wire to the arm of the tower. And over the course of about 100 years, uh, the hook um, wore away little by little with uh, every windstorm, every snowstorm, until it was uh, the integrity was compromised enough that it broke nearly in half. It dropped a wire, an arc of electricity surged from that wire, and uh, the sparks settled on the dry brush beneath the tower, igniting the fire. Wow. And you say... Over the course of a hundred years, why wasn't PG&E aware of the condition of the hook that it was wearing away? 
It is remarkable. So this particular transmission line was built around 1921. Uh, the hook was purchased around that time, and it was never replaced from the day that it was installed. Um, over the past 20 years or so, PG&E's inspection practices changed quite a bit for a number of different reasons, and they weren't doing the types of inspections needed to monitor the state of the tiny pieces of hardware, you know, the hooks and, and other things that connect wires to towers. And uh, uh, investigators had estimated that the wear on the hook was visible for about 50 years, um, but no one within the company had documented it, and the company was not aware of the state of the hook um, and the fact mm -hmm. that it was very, very close to giving way for a long period of time. So it's visible for 50 years, but only visible if you physically climb the tower to look at it, right? Historically speaking, climbing the towers has been one of the best ways to assess that type of equipment. There are other ways. You can use drones and, and other technology. Mm -hmm. They can get close so that you can yeah, you know, do a, an up-close evaluation of, of that kind of thing. But the company, for the most part, was sending people to walk the transmission lines, which is called a ground inspection, and fly them by helicopter. But the way that they were doing those inspections wasn't... Um, they, they weren't able to uh, you know, really assess the, the state of that equipment. Yeah. Your description of the 2018 campfire really took me back to that period. Your descriptions of the 911 distress, distress calls, and then there's this moment when you describe the speed of that fire mm -hmm. at its fastest being the equivalent of 80 football fields a minute, and so we can get a sense of how many lives why so many lives were lost in that fire. One of the things that happened after that incredibly destructive fire was that there were, of course, investigators from both PG&E and also actually the Butte County DA's office to inspect that entire transmission line. Can you tell us what they found? Because I'm really curious if there were other hooks that were like that. <laughs> Yes, yes. So PG&E itself uh, sent um, a group of inspectors out shortly after the fire to evaluate the entire uh, transmission line, which was known as the Caribou Palermo, as well as some other transmission lines in the vicinity. And they did find an enormous amount of issues uh, related to hooks and other connectors. It's called cold end hardware. And it's called cold end hardware because it's not connected to the uh, the hot wire itself. It's um, it's uh, connected to a string of insulator discs and it's uh, it hooks to the, the cold part of the tower, so not the hot wire. Mm. Anyway, um, so th there were other issues related to cold end hardware, basically these these hooks that had been wearing down little by little with precipitation, with windstorms, uh, et cetera. And the Butte County um, District Attorney's Office did really remarkable work on this case in which they flew by helicopter several lines in the vicinity and found um, other issues. And upon flying the Caribou Palermo, determined that there were numerous towers that had shown the sort of wear uh, that was evident um, on the tower that failed. And it was one of the, you know, the key... Um, components of the investigation that allowed them to um, charge the company with involuntary manslaughter. Yeah. Can you just talk about how unprecedented that is? 
Right, right. I mean, very few, very few American corporations have have faced manslaughter charges uh, historically, or really any sort of homicide charge. In this case, uh, they determined that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't simple negligence on the part of the company. It was um, they were able to prove criminal intent, and that the company knew that there were risks throughout the system in this particular region and did very little to mitigate them. Um, it, and it's uh, really, frankly, unprecedented. It's it was a it was a remarkable conviction. Yeah, we're talking with Catherine Blunt, energy reporter for the Wall Street Journal, about PG&E and PG&E's culpability in the campfire. We have some tape, actually, of the day in June of 2020, or over the course of days in June of 2020, when victims of the campfire were able to confront PG&E executives. And and we have a cut, actually, here of Sky Sedwick, whose father died in the campfire. It is this culture of apathy, neglect, and greed that has become synonymous with PG&E. And I wonder what will it take for that to change? How many more have to die? And then here is some tape of uh, then-CEO Bill Johnson. He held that position extremely briefly, actually, in June 2020 when he and the company pleaded guilty. Our equipment started that fire, destroyed the towns of Paradise, Concow, severely burned Megalia, other parts of Butte County, took the lives of 85 people. Thousands of people lost their homes and businesses, forced to evacuate under horrific circumstances. I wish there was some way to take back what happened or to take away the impact, the pain that these people have suffered. But I know that can't be done. But here's what I can say. First, PG&E will never forget the campfire and all that took from the region. We remain deeply, deeply sorry for this event and the tragic consequences. Catherine Blunt, can you remind us of some of the major consequences for PG&E after this? Absolutely. So the campfire was the deadliest and, and most destructive in California history, but the company's power lines have sparked a number of fires over the years. There was uh, a significant one in 2015, known as the Butte Fire. In uh, seven, uh, 2017, in October, um, the company's power lines ignited about uh, 17 or 18 wildfires that ultimately killed 22 people. And then, of course, the campfire ignited in 2018 and, and killed 84. And so in California, utilities are liable for the damages uh, resulting from fires ignited by their equipment. And as a result of this, pg e faced more than uh, $30 billion in liability costs. So it had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. It was the second time it had done so in a 20-year period. And it was an immensely complicated restructuring that had to be completed very quickly under pressure from the state. And ultimately, the process had had major implications for the company's financial health, as well as its ability to compensate fire victims. Um, It uh, established a a trust to compensate them that was funded with half cash and half with shares in the company itself. Half with shares in the company itself. This is just because it just didn't have enough money. That's right. That's right. So um, in reaching several different settlements, um, the company uh, was left with very little cash. It settled claims with... um, Various governmental agencies for $1 billion in cash. It settled claims with insurers who were able to seek compensation from the company because of this 
liability construct in California, $11 billion in cash. And by the time it reached a settlement with fire victims, it did not have enough cash to compensate them uh, fully, which is why there was the share construct. And you had mentioned earlier that in California, utilities bear the cost of property damage and other liabilities. This is even if their lines had been perfectly maintained, right? That's right. That's right. So it is, uh, it is regardless of whether they're negligent. Yes. And is that, I mean, I imagine the companies have tried to fight against that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. For, for many years now, um, PG&E and, and the state's other um, investor-owned utilities have signaled that this, um, you know, it's it presents an enormous financial risk for them. And uh, there have been various legislative actions over the last several years to kind of lessen the sting of this particular uh, constitutional provision by allowing them to um, issue low-interest bonds to help offset some of the costs. Uh, there was um, a very substantial piece of legislation in 2019 that uh, created a wildfire fund, essentially, in which um, if the utility was negligent, it would have to pay a deductible in order to tap the fund. But if it was not negligent, it could it could draw from the fund without that requirement. Um, but nevertheless, you know, this particular uh, constitutional provision remains on the books. And um, I imagine it would be politically unpalatable to change it. It would be difficult. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Well, we're talking with Catherine Blunt about PG&E's culpability in the campfire and other devastating wildfires. The chronic conditions of mismanagement and infrastructure neglect uh, that the campfire revealed as a criminal case unfolded against the company. All of this incredible history is documented in Catherine Blunt's new book, California Burning. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about PG&E? What impact has PG&E had on you? Are you connected to a PG&E-related disaster somehow? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can share those things on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Tinder, the app that's credited with changing the way we date. It turns 10 in September, and we want to hear whether it helped you find love, meet new people. 
realize your thumb's nascent ability to swipe right and what you learned when you swiped right, you can tell us by emailing forum at KQED or by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300 ahead of the show. Today, we're taking a deep dive into California's biggest utility company, PG&E, better known today for its connection to devastating wildfires, a gas pipeline disaster, power outages, then its role in helping California's growth and economy. Catherine Blunt is an energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal who's written a new book about PG&E called California Burning. And you, our listeners, are sharing your reflections, which you can always share by calling 866-733-6786, posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by emailing forum at kqed.org. This listener writes, PG&E fills me with abhorrence, and I can't believe that after decades of wildfires and preventable deaths, they've finally decided to implement an electric undergrounding program. PG&E is a perfect example of the shortcomings of government-sanctioned monopolies. Catherine, the book is, of course, about the fall of PG&E, but that means that it must have fallen from somewhere. It's credited with playing a major role in California's growth. And so can you just take us back a little bit and talk about its founding? Sure, absolutely. So really, when we were talking earlier in the program about the transmission line that failed, it was a really interesting lens into the history of this company. So PG&E was founded around the turn of the 20th century um, as a result of um, the mergers of, of several different small electric power providers across Northern California. And around this time, you were beginning to have uh, you're beginning to see conventional wisdom that uh, an electric utility should be a monopoly because it's a capital-intensive business, and the idea was, you know, we shouldn't have multiple companies building duplicative infrastructure. But for a while, the company had one real competitor, and that was Great Western Power Company. The it, the transmission line that failed was actually built by Great Western, not PG&E, and the mm. two companies merged in 1930 to create the monopoly that we know today. And it, it really did a lot to electrify different parts of California, to promote economic prosperity across the state. And for a long time, it was it was a company run by very proud engineers. Um, and then you begin to see that change in the mid-90s with a push to deregulate the electricity industry. Um, it totally changed the way electricities procure power and resulted in a lot of different problems. I mean, many listeners will recall the electricity crisis of 2001, which resulted in PG&E's first bankruptcy. Yeah, I think we actually have a caller on that point. Margaret in Sonoma County, thanks for joining us. What would you like to ask Catherine? Hi, um, you sort of answered my question. Um, my question was, the effect that deregulation had on it, because I recall years ago that PG&E used to spend a lot of time in the summer working for winter needs and in the winter working for summer needs, rebuilding plants, cleaning trees. Um, so I'm just, yeah, that was my question, the effect that deregulation had on that when they had to, I would guess, compete with companies that didn't have the same uh, union demands and all of that. That's yeah. That's well, well, thanks, Margaret. I think, I think what you were noticing in terms of PG&E's maintenance and so on was one of the costs of deregulation, right? Can you explain that, Catherine? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a there's a couple of ways to think about it. I think that most significantly, 
PG&E filed for bankruptcy protection after the energy crisis, and it emerged um, in 2004, the 2005 timeframe. And with that came a real push to please shareholders, to reestablish the company as a strong financial performer. And with that came um, uh, expense pressure. The company was reducing spending on, on certain types of maintenance. So that was a that was a big problem. The, the other consequence of deregulation is that utilities would no longer be the companies to the, they would no longer be the primary companies to generate power. So they sold most of their power plants and um, you know to to competitive power producers. And so they would basically have to contract for power. And around this time frame, California became very intent on reducing carbon emissions and requiring the utilities to procure a large amount of wind and solar power. At the time when this began, wind and solar were much more expensive than they are today. So they were procuring a lot of very expensive contracts that further added pressure. Uh, on expenses and had long t- long-term consequences for uh, their maintenance spending. Can you talk about why PG&E filed for bankruptcy in 2001? Yes. So uh, the California energy crisis is one of the more complicated things I've ever had the privilege of studying. But um, <laughs> uh, suffice it to say that the uh, there was manipulation of the new competitive power market that resulted from deregulation. The utilities were forced to purchase very expensive wholesale power, and they weren't able to recoup those costs through customers. So they wound up with uh, a lot of debt and, as a result of that, filed for bankruptcy protection. And so you were saying that the bankruptcy, once they were coming out of it, that the leadership at PG&E felt a lot of pressure to please their shareholders at the expense of maintenance and safety. And you see a direct link from this to the San Bruno disaster, right? And just remind us what happened there. That's right. Well. That's right. So it's uh, worth noting that utilities make money in an, in an unusual way. They, they make an authorized rate of return on large capital investments. They do not make returns on what are considered kind of day-to-day maintenance and operation spending uh, expenses. And so you saw a real push after the first bankruptcy to spend heavily on large capital investments and minimize operations and maintenance expenses to the extent possible. And then in 2010, a gas transmission pipeline exploded in San Bruno, which is south of San Francisco, killed eight people. It was a really tragic disaster. I mean, it was an enormous amount of gas escaped and burned. Yes. And an auditor for the California Public Utilities Commission found that between about 1997, around the time of, of deregulation, and 2010, the company had overearned its authorized rate of return by investing heavily in capital and had underspent on operations and maintenance. And the cuts were particularly acute in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and they were uh, especially acute in gas transmission spending. And so you cannot draw a direct link between that and what happened in San Bruno, but it did. Uh, result in a huge overhaul of the gas system, as well as a criminal investigation into the company's maintenance spending on gas transmission. Let me go to caller Daryl in Santa Barbara. Hi, Daryl. Hi. Nina. Are you Hi. Yeah. What's on your mind? Okay. Well, um, I've heard a lot of this, the attacks on uh, the PG&E and their faults and the they're, they're being blamed for all of this. And I know they, they had some problems with their lines, but I feel that uh, basically the PG&E is being used as a scapegoat and a whipping boy for the 
the people of California who basically haven't done anything to stop the real problem, which is uh, the climate change and our extreme droughts and the, the climate problems we're having, because mm. we have had the PG&E for 100 years, yet we have not had fires like the campfire and the others for all that time except for this century. And they keep getting worse, and it's a PG&E. They're, they're maybe trying to racing to deal with this, our, our basic problems, are not dealt with by the governor because the people aren't pushing the governor to do something about um, too much carbon dioxide, uh, too much population overcrowding. We don't have uh, we have a 900 mile coast, not one single uh, insulation along the coast to uh, lower carbon dioxide output. We put yeah. out more carbon dioxide per per capita than any state in the world. Okay. Well, Daryl, yeah, I think you're raising some really important points, and I'd love to hear Catherine's take on that? I mean, is PG&E just unlucky? The company has made a lot of missteps over the years, so it's not simply unlucky. But um, the, the caller raises a really excellent point that the company's, the risk profile of the company's service territory changed very quickly as a result of, of drought and climate change. Um, there has been, a, you know, as as listeners know, the state is consumed by drought right now. There's been several periods over the last 10, 20 years of a very significant drought. And it, it fires used to be a, primarily a Southern California problem, but they very quickly became a Northern California problem as millions of trees died, making the consequence of a single spark so much higher than it had been historically. And, and can you talk about yet and yet? During this time when the California Public Utilities Commission was trying to, as I understand it, consider additional measures to put on utility companies, um, PG&E argued that it shouldn't be held to those additional standards because wildfires were not as big a problem in its service area? That's right. That's right. So that's actually really one of the more remarkable parts of the story. Even as there was evidence that the climate was changing, the service territory was becoming riskier, PG&E argued for quite some time that it shouldn't be held to the same standards as its southern counterparts because the risk of fire was not as great in its service territory. And regulators, upon review, agreed. They said that, you know, we have no evidence that this is a, a really substantial risk in Northern California, and therefore PG&E doesn't have to take the same risk mitigation measures. And uh, that proved... Um, incredibly short-sighted for obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible miscalculation. Regina writes, I hear a lot of references to the campfire being caused by PG&E, but no mention of the fire that ripped through Santa Rosa in 2017, which was also caused by PG&E. I have many friends who lost their homes and have not received any money or compensation from PG&E. Regina, I, I live in Napa and I hear you. That was a horrific fire. And until then was viewed as one of the most horrendous and deadly fires by PG&E only to then be usurped a year later by the campfire, um, which is just really incredible. And then when you talk about how they just grossly miscalculated the threat of wildfires in Northern California and did not add additional standards, is that why many people point to San Diego utility or even Southern California Edison actually doing better with regard to at least its efforts to mitigate fires caused by its its equipment. Sure. So um, in 2007, there was a really 
uh, devastating fire in, in the San Diego area called the Witch Fire, and it really startled San Diego Gas and Electric into action. Um, it also initiated the proceeding that we were talking about earlier within the California Public Utilities Commission to try to push the utilities to do more to address wildfire threats, ultimately resulting in some requirements for San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison. So these companies together have had more time to address wildfire risk in a really earnest way, more so than PG&E. They also have smaller service territories, which has allowed for them to amass a greater density of the kind of technology needed to not only reduce fire risk, but monitor weather conditions and um, and and do other things to uh, keep tabs on the state of their equipment and whether there's any trees at risk of contacting their lines. Um, so those utilities are doing better in part because they've had a head start and um, and and they are, they don't have quite as much to manage as PG&E. Let me go to caller Joel in San Francisco. Hi, Joel. Hey, how are you doing? Um, well. I got a question about um, compensation because my mother-in-law, who's 87 years old, um, lost her property in the Kincaid fire mm. and um, it seems like they're kind of waiting for attrition. She's 87. What happens to the compensation if the main person is deceased? Um, does the compensation stop? Does, does it get reduced? Hmm. Seems like they're waiting us out. Um, Catherine, do you have any insights on that? That's a really great question. I'm not sure what happens if the claimant uh, is deceased prior to compensation. Um, it's definitely something that I should find out the answer to, and, and I certainly can. But I think the caller speaks to this, um, I mean, a really sad element of this story, which is that the trust that was funded to compensate wildfire victims has had a great deal of difficulty in not only dispersing the cash that was allocated to it, but also dispersing the shares um, because the, the trust holds a very large stake in the company. And so it can't sell it all at once. It has to do so slowly over time. Well, Catherine writes, how expensive electricity has become. People have seen their electricity costs double and triple while attempting to use less. Are ratepayers paying the cost of this too, Catherine? Yes, yes. So um, utility rates across California are very high relative to the rest of the country. There's a number of different reasons for this. Part is because some of the um, utilities early... Uh, investments in in wind and solar power by virtue of these contracts were were quite expensive. Um, Wind and solar are some of the cheapest forms of generation now, but they weren't about 10 years ago. So you see that way on rates over time. And also all of the utilities are spending quite a bit of money on wildfire mitigation. And uh, we're also preparing for greater electrification, more electric vehicles, more um, efforts to electrify homes. And so the utilities are also spending to bolster the grid to support this additional demand, um, which has you know, created a lot of different challenges. Not only that, but we're, we're living in a very inflationary period in which natural gas prices have risen significantly. Natural gas is still used to generate a lot of electricity. So you're seeing cost pressures as a result of that as well. We're talking with Catherine Blunt, energy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Her new book is California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and what it means for America's power grid. You, our listeners, are sharing your reactions, your questions. You can share with us if you have been impacted by a PG&E-related disaster and your thoughts on how you think the utility should change. You can email forum at kqed.org, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. 
Allen writes, PG&E started a Kincaid fire nearby. It destroyed several houses and outbuildings. As part of their settlement, PG&E agreed to fund inspections by the local authority for home fire prevention setbacks, i.e. 30 feet of defensible space. We have had five years of either PG&E caused or lightning caused wildfires, but now we must spend lots of money on mitigation measures around our homes. Had PG&E done their due diligence, I would not have to spend several thousand dollars preparing for their next mishap. Seems so unfair. I went from the terrors of wildfires to the terrors of bureaucracy, all thanks to PG&E. <clears throat> you know, Catherine, I want to share, we invited PG&E to join the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they declined, but they did send us a statement, uh, a statement about your book and also about how they are trying to do things differently They wrote, quote, we appreciate the book's thorough review and will make it required reading for company leaders as part of our broader efforts to welcome feedback and learn from the past. Today, PG&E is a different company with new leadership under Patty Poppy, who became CEO in January of 2021 and a new board of directors that was elected in June of 2020. We are resolved to make it right for wildfire victims and to do everything in our power to make our system safe for our customers. I imagine you've you've seen this statement. Just really curious what your reaction is to it. Yeah, um, I was really heartened by this statement, uh, to be honest. It shows, I think, a real openness to and, um, you know, a certain... Um, yeah, you know, an an openness to addressing the missteps of the past and and trying to learn from them. Um, just the fact that this book could have value internally um, and help people who maybe you know within the company that may be focused on a, a a singular task on the day on a day to day basis kind of see the bigger picture and understand the company's history holistically. Um, I really appreciate that, and I mean, I, I hope it does have value. And uh, it the, it is absolutely true that the company is under new leadership. Um, since arriving in January of 2021, Patty Poppy has made a number of very significant changes that I, I think could have a, a great deal of impact on on risk mitigation. Yeah, well, we've heard promises like this from PG&E leadership before. I imagine you are trying to keep up with whether or not they are following through with those words. Curious what our listeners think. We'll hear from you after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Energy reporter Catherine Blunt started her job at the Wall Street Journal three days after the camp fire started. The fire became Blunt's beat as she and her colleagues first focused on PG&E's chronic mismanagement and criminal neglect of its infrastructure, then zoomed out to the regulatory environment that enabled it, to the intensifying heats of climate, the intensifying effects of climate change with heat and drought. And this is all in her new book, California Burning. You, our listeners, are sharing your experiences with PG&E, your reflections on PG&E. And I've also asked if you have thought about what you think PG&E can do better to try to mitigate some of the issues uh, that it has created. This listener writes, by no means is undergrounding a new technology, and yet PGD never created a statewide plan to implement it sooner. Eight people died in the San Bruno pipeline explosion. 86 people died in the campfire. Four died in the Zog fire. And the list goes on. This level of negligence isn't forgivable. Can you talk a little bit about their undergrounding plan now um, and, and what this listener is saying? I think there's an initiative to place 10,000 miles of power lines underground in high fire risk areas. That's right. Um, this has been um, one of the more remarkable developments over the last couple of years. So historically, PGD has said, we can't underground at scale because it is too expensive. And Last summer, as many listeners will remember, a tree uh, fell into a, a small power line in the Feather River Canyon close to Paradise where the campfire ignited and spread to become the second largest wildfire in California history. This was a few months um, into Patty Poppy's tenure as CEO, and she went up to Chico in Butte County, and uh, as the fire was blazing out of control, and she said, you know, today's the day we announced new strategy, and we're going to underground 10,000 miles of distribution wire. This was a very bold and, frankly, risky statement on her part because the company hadn't done much to really formulate a concrete plan as to how it was going to do this. Uh, it is true that undergrounding is expensive. Um, it costs more to, you know, retrofit the overhead system in this way than some other means of risk mitigation. But her argument is that we spend a huge amount of money on trimming trees and making sure that they don't come into contact with power lines and doing other sorts of inspections uh, needed to maintain the safety of the overhead system. We are going to put that underground, basically eliminating the risk of fire and eliminating some of those other costs. Um, it remains to be seen how the company manages these costs at a time when rates are already really high and we are in a very inflationary environment. That's going to be a real challenge. But um, they say that they can continually drive down the cost per mile and that they can do so cost effectively and that the long term savings will outweigh the initial investment. But there is there are very real challenges associated with this plan. Hmm. Let me go to Marcel in Berkeley. Hi, Marcel. Uh, hello. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I actually had a question right along those lines about undergrounding. And I'm curious whether you can say more because. It seems like part of what you've described about the tragedy with the campfire and the sea hook is that PG&E just failed inspecting its equipment. And I gather that Cal Fire has found similar problems with other fires where PG&E just failed to trim trees the way it was supposed to. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, my understanding is that PG&E plans to spend, you know, it's asking the Public Utilities Commission to let it spend almost $10 billion just in the next four years to underground less, about 
of its wires in high fire threat areas. And so I'm wondering whether you think is undergrounding really the better strategy or can PG&E simply do a much better job following the law and inspecting its equipment and trimming the trees? That's a great question. I mean, that that's a, that is a very, very good question. So, you know, undergrounding is really the only way to totally eliminate the risk of ignition on any circuit. So there are some circuits out there that probably really should go underground because maybe they're very remote. Maybe they're in a place in which, you know, trees, there are greater risk of contact with trees. Maybe they're in especially windy areas. So the hardware is more prone to failure. I think that that makes a lot of sense from a risk reduction standpoint. But even if they bury all 10,000 miles of power lines, it's not the entire system. And they, they do need to do better to make sure that their inspection practices are catching the kinds of risks that associated were associated with the failure of the transmission tower that started the campfire, making sure that the contractors that they send out to, to trim the trees are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, um, marking and removing the trees that are at risk of igniting fires. So... The company does need to do more to comply with regulatory requirements and comply with its own internal targets. Uh, there's no question about that, whether or not they're able to underground. But I think that there are some circuits that are are risky enough that this does make sense. Well, Marilee writes, my sister lost her house in paradise. And in spite of being part of a group that put together some emergency go with me lists that prioritize what to take if they had 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, etc., she was forced to leave immediately and was only able to grab a computer and some legal papers. Her partner left with nothing and was feared lost when he showed up at that meeting place two hours after she did. She said that driving through the flames was like driving through hell. During the restructuring that was done in the late 1990s, I remember the top management group being able to walk off with millions of dollars. And I remember hearing from a couple of friends who worked for PG&E line maintenance who were really scared, saying we're going to pay for this sometime in the future as gas and electrical line maintenance was drastically cut. Let me go to Lucas in Santa Clara. Hi, Lucas. Oh, hi. Yeah, I, I'm wondering why we can't break up PG&E as a monopoly. It seems like we broke up AT&T. They had similar infrastructure issues. And frankly, if the future is energy storage, maybe California can go to microgrids and like get rid of a lot of this transmission line problematic stuff that's caused lots of death and negligence. Mm. Thanks, Lucas. Catherine, I imagine you've also heard this proposed, too. Yes. And I mean, the, Lucas, you raised an excellent point. I mean, there's 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 a lot to be said about doing more, um, uh, having more distributed infrastructure, uh, microgrids being being something like that, you know, rooftop solar, um, aggregated batteries. I mean, uh, the ability to kind of shift the power generation closer to the customer. There's th that helps, um, certainly. But the idea of um, breaking up PG&E, yeah, I guess, I mean, you could have, um, I guess, several different regional companies managing different parts of the infrastructure, potentially. But it cr that kind of creates its own issues because some of the, the riskiest infrastructure is in remote areas that don't really have a dense population base, which kind of, it changes the economics of the model in a way that's that's quite challenging. So there's that. And there's been a couple of different ownership structures that have been studied as a course over the course of the, the last bankruptcy, you know, public ownership by virtue yeah. of remo removing some of the big cities and uh, a co-op in which it'd be owned by members. But 
some of the, the greatest challenges and risks still remain even under different ownership models. Well, let me play a cut. Actually, this is Representative Rokana, California Rep Rokana. This was in November of 2021 when he was really questioning the investor-owned utility model. When is enough enough? I mean, we know that PG&E has underinvested in safety. We know that PG&E has not prioritized ratepayers. We now know that PG&E prioritized private investors at the expense of the victims of the fires. And I just think that at some point, Californians are going to say, this model is not working. It's one thing to have hedge funds or private equity run hotels or airlines. But when it comes to something like providing electricity safely, that should be a responsibility of the state to care about the common good and not private interests. And this could be the straw that broke the camel's back. So, Catherine, what insights have you gained through your reporting about the investor-owned utility model, maybe about what regulations might be needed here? Absolutely. So, you know, as we were discussing earlier in the program, the unusual way in which utilities make money uh, by investing in large capital investments and minimizing operations and maintenance expenses. In an ideal world, a company should be able to strike this balance, but um, PG&E has not done so historically. It has done so exceptionally poorly. There are other utilities across the country that also have difficulty striking this balance. So there are there's, there is tension between private interests in the form of shareholders and the public good through this model. I mean, there's it is inherent within the business and it is incumbent upon the company to manage it and incumbent upon the regulators to make sure that the company is spending money appropriately. But as we've seen with PG&E, it's a challenging balance to strike, and it's challenging to have oversight as to what is happening internally in terms of the way you know money is being shifted around. And so, I mean, it certainly calls for should be a wake up call to regulators. Um, certainly, I mean, the disasters that PG&E has experienced has been a wake up call for PG&E. Um, but you know, as we we're also discussing earlier, it is it is it is hard to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. I mean, the the investor owned utility model is the dominant model for providing electricity throughout the country. And, you know, it is possible to change it, but not without a not without a real fight. I mean, with shareholders and and other issues associated with making the changes. And in California, you know, even under a different ownership model, whether it be public or, you know, a customer and cooperative, the entity is still liable for damages resulting from fires. And so that it it continues to create financial risk for the entity, no matter what the ownership structure is. Let me go to Larry in Napa. Hi, Larry. Hi there. I'm an outdoorsman, an old guy, and I have seen absolutely astounding things happen in nature. And I am of the firm belief that nobody, PG&E and no one else, is going to be able to micromanage Mother Nature. Um, People talk about pruning branches on trees. I've seen winds come up out in the wilderness that would rip a tree out and just knock it right over. All trees fall down. Sooner or later, big trees are just going to fall on electric lines. Lawyers well, Larry, will tell you you can micromanage Mother Nature, but in the end, you will find you cannot. Well, Larry, thanks for your view on this. Uh, Catherine, I, your book says that PG&E is really a cautionary tale for other utility companies across the country in the context, too, of the incredible changes that we're seeing because of climate change and the types of things that Larry also described I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Why is what happened to PG&E 
in California, not just a California story, but something that you think is really important as a national story? Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we're seeing, I mean, let's um, just think about all the different types of disasters that we saw last year in 2021. We saw very significant westwide heat wave, you know, an extraordinary hurricane ripping through um, Louisiana and taking out all of the transmission lines serving New Orleans. We saw, you know, a freak um, spate of storms just totally ripped through Michigan. Um, and of course, the uh, the Texas freeze in which, you know, power plants of all kinds failed. and More than 200 people died in the cold because the grid operator had to um, call for days long blackouts to balance supply and demand. So, all of a lot of these events have a climate signature, right? Scientists have determined that the severity of the event was exacerbated by climate change. So you're beginning to see new risks um, on the entire electric system across the country, which means utilities are going to have to think differently about how they manage risk. Um, risk management has costs, obviously. And if the company has a history of mismanaging risk or you know, it's historically prioritize shareholders in a way that it shouldn't have. This is a challenging proposition, and the consequences are very real in that, you know, electricity disasters are at best inconvenient, right, and at worst deadly. And so um, it's uh, it's it's going to be um, it, watching this company this company's experience, I think, um, can really shed light on some of the challenges that other companies may face as well as we see uh, continual changes in the climate. We're talking with The Wall Street Journal's Catherine Blunt. Her new book is California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A few more reflections from our listeners. Constance tweets, I lost my trust in the management of this company when a gas line blew up in my hometown, San Bruno. I'm sorry, Constance. The smell of gas has been report, was had been reported in the neighborhood for weeks. How can we trust them to secure nuclear waste? This is related to PG&E's operation of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Catherine. Sure. Well, um, so there is an ongoing debate. Obviously, the, the legislature is trying to hash out a plan to potentially extend the life of the plant, which is supposed to begin retirement in 24 and be totally retired by 25. Um so, I mean, like the airline industry, the nuclear industry is extremely safe. And because of this plant's proximity to seismic faults and other things, its safety has been very closely studied. Um, the company says the plant is safe. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission keeps very close watch over all of this. I think that the operations of the plant are safe. Um, but of course, you know, uh, n nuclear power has made people nervous for a very long time following yes. Three Mile Island and other things. I understand that. Yeah. Well, Stephen writes, as a retired geophysicist, earthquake seismologist, I consider the largest and scariest issue of PG&E operations the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. I sat in the U.S. Geological Survey panel that advised the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on Diablo Canyon safety from the perspective of earthquakes and other related seismogenic faults. The conclusion of the USGS panel was that there was a significant and unknown level of risk for a catastrophic radiation release from the plant. That risk only increases every day that the plant operates. The Los Angeles region lies downwind from the Diablo Canyon plant. I mean, what this really underscores is, is PG&E a better, safer company, right? Has it really changed and learned? Uh, you mentioned being optimistic, but uh, it really, it sounds like 
also needs to shore up in a very significant way public trust. Let me go to Freddie in Redwood City quickly. Hi, Freddie. We just have a minute left, but go right ahead. Thank you. I don't think that the utility company should be owned by private investors. All they're looking to is make some money. That's why the utility lines weren't put underground in the first place. That's one uh, of my statements. Well, Freddie, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, uh, Michael writes here, every time I see or hear one of the slickly produced ads that PG&E seems to run constantly on numerous media outlets, I'm reminded that I'd rather have a utility that gains our trust by doing their job safely and efficiently, not by constantly advertising to us what a great job they're doing, how much of their budget could be spent doing their jobs better or replacing equipment, rather than telling us what a great job they're doing. And Walt writes, I have no hope for PG&E self-reform, but the people of California have the CPUC on our side. How do you think they could play a stronger role in hold, holding PG&E accountable? You recall they withdrew a staff-recommended $200 million fine a couple of years ago. So, yeah, we just, again, very short time left. But I am curious, you know, the role that the state has to play, that we as individuals have to play, and what PG&E will need to prove to gain back some of the public's uh, distrust that we're hearing from our listeners. Absolutely. Well, it remains to be seen if the company can ever earn that back. It's it's been uh, It's been a long – I mean – the number of disasters over the years have been truly remarkable. In regard to the state, um, historically speaking, the this, this California Public Utilities Commission has had an understaffed safety department. And I think that it's um, it's incumbent upon the regulator to make sure that it's doing everything it can from a safety oversight perspective, especially as all utilities face increasing risk of fire. Well, Catherine, I have to say, as someone who, you know, covered the story in bits and pieces <laughs> as it was unfolding, right? I, I have to say your book, the context provided, really knitted all of this together for me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Catherine Blunt's book is California Burning, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your connections to this. We are so many of us connected in so many ways. My thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.